Hello, I am Oliver Tonby, Chairman of McKinsey in Asia. I am also your host. Welcome to the Future of Asia podcast series. The Asian century has begun. Asia is the world's largest regional economy. It is at the center of the technology revolution. It is at the center of consumption growth, consumers of the future. It is at the center of climate risk and what we need to do to mitigate. As our economies evolve further, Asia has the potential to fuel and shape the next normal. In each episode, we are going to feature conversations with leaders from across the region to discuss what Asia's rise means for businesses everywhere. Welcome. Welcome, welcome everyone to the Future of Asia podcast series. Today's topic is how companies can improve workplace mental health. Mental health has been a topic on many companies' minds for years, and it has certainly been exacerbated during the COVID pandemic. And today we're going to dig into what does this mean for companies and what can they do about it? I am joined by three distinguished colleagues. I am joined by Kana Enomoto. She is a senior knowledge expert out of Washington, D.C. Prior to McKinsey, she was the head of the Substance Abuse Center in the U.S. I am joined by Fiona Lander. She is an engagement manager, a project leader out of our Australia office uh, based in Perth. Uh, she is a medical doctor and a lawyer. We are also joined by Alistair Carmichael. He is an expert associate partner in our org practice uh, based out of Sydney in Australia. And he also happens to be one of the founders of the precursor to the Mind Matters practice and initiative that we have in McKinsey focused on mental health. Thank you all three of you for joining us today. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. It is a very important topic for many of our clients, and certainly it's an important topic for the firm. Let's, even before we dig into what is the impact of mental health on work performance, can you just explain what are we talking about, just so we're on the same page when it comes to what are we talking about when it comes to mental health? What does it mean in practice? Kana, would you like to give a, a brief, how do you define mental health? Sure. When I think about mental health, I think about both mental illnesses and substance use disorders. And when we're talking about mental illnesses, we're talking about health conditions that involve you know, significant changes in, in emotion, thinking, behavior, often associated with distress and a change in functioning in daily tasks like your social relationships, your work, your family activities. And so these can be things that range in severity from mildly distressing to disabling, frankly, and chronic and recurring conditions. And substance use disorders, you're talking about chronic, potentially recurring brain disorders that characterize compulsive substance seeking and uh, despite harmful use and that can cause long lasting changes in the brain, but all of which can be, be treated and most of which um, many people can and do recover. Perfect. Alistair, any ads to that definition? Yeah, two things I'd add. One is we're thinking about mental health as a continuum. That we all move up or up or down uh, or along that continuum from a place of languishing to a place of flourishing. And the other thing I'd add is is actually how I think about workplace mental health as distinct from mental health, individual mental health. 
And it's thinking about it as what are the, the factors that are in a workplace ecosystem or environment that either encourage positive mental health or contribute to poor mental health. And that's structural factors, that's cultural factors, that's operating system, that's behaviours as well. Perfect. Thank you both. Um, now, let's dig in. The first overarching question is, what is the impact of poor mental health on work performance? So we've actually got pretty good documented evidence of the impact of mental ill health in the workplace. So we know, for example, in Australia that something in the order of 20% of Australians will experience a mental health condition in any given year. And when we think about how that translates to the workplace, that can result in a loss of, say, 10 to 12 work days per year for that individual and 14 to 18 days of reduced productivity. Now, of course, that's going to vary significantly depending on the individual and the extent of their mental ill health. Now, when it comes to how workplaces can um, intervene, it's important to note that early intervention and getting on top of things quickly can really reduce the burden for that individual and in turn the workplace because there is a real cost here. And we're going to come back to how companies can intervene a little bit in a little while. I still want to stick on what what is the impact of mental health on workplace performance. So I heard you saying, you know, 10 to 12 workdays out of the office, so to speak, out of the workplace, and uh, on top of that, 14, 18 days reduced productivity. How many people are affected by by mental health? Alistair? It's about one. Um, so the estimates vary country to country, but it's a, Australia and, and a number of countries, it's about one in five adults in any year experience it. And and of that one in five, just to, to put even a sharper face on it, it's estimated that about 50% or more don't get the right sort of support or right sort of treatment that they need. Oh, I would just add on to that. So I think, first of all, we all have mental health. I think as Alistair noted, we're on a continuum from, from languishing to flourishing. So everybody has is, is somewhere on that continuum. And the one in five for mental illness is, is people who are actually having say, sort of a diagnosable condition. But if we're talking about people that are distressed, um, could be having subclinical levels of anxiety, depression, burnout, stress, that is a significant number of people. And as we're returning to work or in the context of COVID, we're seeing numbers closer to 40 or 50% of people that are, have been adversely affected over this period of time. So say a little bit more about that. How has COVID exacerbated this, the mental health issues that we see? So, you know, right now, uh, we have people that are concerned still for their safety, people that have are undergoing the transition from working at home to having uh, to go back to dealing with their commutes or, or being concerned about their ability to manage personal responsibilities and balance work and life. And that kind of distress causes people to be anxious, that causes them to feel like they can be less engaged. They can't bring their full selves to work because they have kind of this level of anxiety or concern going on in the background. And I think that this is uh, something that workplaces, many workplaces are already th are thinking about and that they can make a difference. And one of the challenges as well is that's the sort of individual's experience side, but at the same time, the access to support to care in a lot of places has become more difficult. We've seen in, in a number of organizations um, with that extra layer of distress, the demand has gone up. The actual supply of healthcare hasn't gone up. And in fact, it's gone down in some areas because of the strain in the health system. So it's actually a, it's a compounding effect. Thank you. I have a question for you, Kana. Now, 
our audience uh, comes from all across Asia. There is no one Asian culture. Uh, and the topic of mental health will actually be seen quite differently in different countries and different cultures. Any thoughts around that and the implications of very different systems across Asia? Kana? Yes, you know, absolutely. There's, it's Asia Pacific region is very interesting when it comes to mental health because, you know, as you noted, it's, there's no monolith and we have significant variability. We, you know, there are data that indicate that uh, China and India are some of the countries with the greatest burden from depression and workplace productivity. We see countries like South Korea, which with estimated very low per person cost for absenteeism, but also a very high culture of overwork. And so we have evidence that Asian employees are not doing as well, especially during the pandemic. We had a, a survey in Hong Kong that showed one in four employees were experiencing mental health issues during the pandemic. And another study from Singapore was indicating that of employees who reported mental health issues, almost 90%, 87% said that they would not seek help for their mental health condition because of the stigma around it. And so employers need to keep that in mind, uh, you know, depending on where they're operating, that there's a societal and cultural context in the region with, um, with you know, shame and stigma on these issues. Some of the stigmas due to lack of awareness. Some of the stigma could be related to traditional beliefs. And so, you know, it's important to listen to employees to understand the what is meaningful in, in that culture and the way in which these issues may manifest themselves. They may not manifest themselves as people saying, I have depression or I need to see a psychologist, but they may come about in more nuanced ways, in physical, more in physical symptoms, or, or just more indirect ways in which you can take a more culturally based approach to the solution. So I think, you know, there's an opportunity for leaders in the region to get educated and, and learn more about how to address these in culturally appropriate, culturally specific manners that will be more useful to the employees. And I think I'm just following on from that. Sorry, I think just following on from that kind of, you know, maybe something that's really important as a takeaway for senior executives is that in countries where there is really variable access to mental health services, you know, this is where the private sector can actually really lead the way in ensuring that its own employees, you know, protected and given access to the services that they need and indeed destigmatizing some of these conversations that indeed can lead to a bit of a ripple effect more broadly in the community, which is, you know, I think very highly valued. I understand. Now, let's shift into what business leaders, what should business leaders consider when they're thinking about me mental health outcomes? I think, Fiona, you already started on this question a little bit. So what should they be talking and thinking about? I think the way that we find it most helpful to think is in terms of five different domains where organisations can take action. So firstly, designing workplaces to minimise harm to actually prevent the mental ill health. Secondly, building resilience across the organisation. Thirdly, building individual resilience, so equipping individual employees to manage their own mental health and their risk factors. Fourthly, 
facilitating early help seeking. So making sure employees are able to access the services and help that they need. And then finally, where you do have individuals who have been adversely affected with mental ill health, supporting their recovery and return to work to ensure they can be fully rehabilitated back into the workplace. Got it. Listen, I think we need to unpick what some of these things mean. So let's start with the first one, designing workplaces to minimize harm. What does that mean in practice, uh, Fiona? In practice, what it means is there's actually a pretty you know, well-known group of risk factors that make workplaces more stressful and individuals in those workplaces more prone to mental ill health. Now, some examples of these, high levels of role stress, long hours, lack of support from managers, lack of flexibility or ability to actually design your own work and have autonomy over your own workflow, workplace bullying, All of these things are known risk factors for poor health in the workplace. So the good thing is, because these are so established, organisations can actually monitor these risks and understand the extent to which they're present within the workplace as a whole, but also within different subgroups in the workplace and take steps to address those risk factors. It's one of the most important and impactful things a workplace can do to get on top of its overall workplace mental ill health risk. And I guess that during COVID, this notion of designing the workplace to minimize harm, it's actually, has it become more difficult, I would imagine, because we don't have the boundaries between work, home, not, and, and non-work as clearly as we used to do. Is that a factor that comes into this? It's a great question, Oliver. In fact, I think in some ways it's become more difficult, but also counterintuitively easier because the The lack of boundaries that COVID showed up in many instances were in existence pre-COVID. They were just more hidden. Now it's become almost impossible to separate home life and work life. And that's actually led in some instances to leaders being more vulnerable, recognising that steps need to be taken to actually put in place structural interventions to protect their workers in these difficult circumstances. So you can see it as a crisis, but like many crises, there's actually ways to turn around into a positive. Got it. Let me go to the second factor you mentioned, building organizational resilience. What does that mean in practice? And let's go to Alistair um, on this one, perhaps. A couple of things that it can mean. One is is building psychological safety and driving a culture of awareness. So if you think of the um, how you support people in this thing, it's, it's being able to think for an, an organisation, do people know what's going on? Do they understand? Do they have a common language around what mental health is and mental ill health is? And do they know the support that's out there? So if you want to build that up, being able to say, well, we're going to focus on, on psychological safety. We're going to focus on awareness building. We're going to build some baseline skills and capability, workplace mental health training and the like. And we're going to do it visibly. Our leaders are going to be out there and they're going to be talking about it. They're going to be storytelling and they're going to be checking in. That helps boost the baseline organizational resilience and the baseline capability of people to, to cope. One of the things that we saw during COVID was an acknowledgement similar to what Fiona was talking about with the support was that Actually, some of these issues have been here before, but we need to give them prominence. And I know organizations that made the training or awareness building mandatory during COVID um, and elevated it up on their agendas. 
And what that's meant is the conversation in those workplaces that was hidden is now in public. And as, as a result of it being in public, action's being taken and people are getting the support they need. Asia's standing in the world has changed. And it's clear that where the focus once was on how quickly the region would rise, the reality is now all about how Asia will lead. Keep listening to the Future of Asia podcast. Thank you, Alistair. The next topic that Fiona mentioned was building individual resilience. What does that mean in practice, uh, Kana? Yeah, thinking about individual resilience gives organizations the opportunity to really hone in on uh, segments of their of their workforce uh, to look at what kind of stress management programs would be most helpful to them. What are the models of of support uh, that are most relevant? And really thinking about sub-segments and their differential concerns. So whilst for some people, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy, stress management might work, looking at assumptions that they're making about the workplace, looking at concerns they may have in terms of uh, loss of flexibility or increased demand from balancing work and home life, or teaching them new skills for handling stressful situations. That being said, you can look at different groups such as women with children, Gen Z versus baby boomers, right? Gen Z is looking forward to being back in the workplace and and that increased social interactions. Um, Millennials, perhaps less so, uh, depending on where people are in their lives and how the experience of COVID has been for them. I think it's important to look at Uh, how they experience their lives at work. We know in the U.S. that, for example, senior women uh, have, many senior women have considered leaving the workforce uh, after the the year and the pandemic. Um, Black women have indicated that they feel less comfortable in the workplace. And so it's the opportunity of building individual resilience. It's also coming up with individual programs of support and resources that will target different groups and appeal to what their particular needs are. Perfect. Thank you. Topic number four, I think, was facilitating early help seeking. And I think this is something that you mentioned right from the get-go, Fiona. Again, in practice, what is this about? Fundamentally, it's about reducing stigma and making sure that people who are at risk are able to actually access the help that they need as soon as possible because there's a lot of evidence that says that realistically you're going to have a better trajectory in terms of the episode of mental ill health that you have and probably will be able to return to work quicker. So when we think about creating this culture where employees are encouraged to ask for help, some of the things that we think about when we talk about facilitating early help seeking, creating multi-channel communication series. So making sure that you're reaching employees through lots of different media so that they understand that there's a normalized conversation around mental health and that it is okay to say that you're not okay and that you do want to seek help. So things like town halls, to share stories, build awareness and reduce that stigma allows employees to really show vulnerability and in turn seek help when they need it. In addition to this, practically, it's just very important to have specific programs available, for example, um, employee assistance programs. And indeed, we've seen some workplaces expand these to even include family members of employees. So, 
What that really means is that the employee will feel very supported by the organisation and have a very practical channel through which to seek help if they need it. Got it. The fifth and final one of your five points, Fiona, was supporting recovery and return to work. Who wants to take that one? Alistair? Happy to. Um, and then, Connor, I wonder if you want to build on this one because this cuts across the work you do. Um, so w- when we think about supporting recovery and return to work, what you're seeing there is a situation where somebody has is experiencing mental ill health and thinking about how you actually help them get better um, and how you help bring them back into the workplace. What we have seen over time is is a cultural shift from once somebody developed mental ill health, that was a health system thing, we don't really as a workplace need to think about it, to actually thinking about more nuanced way of how you can bring them back into the workplace, build confidence, build support, build their sense of self, um, which aids with recovery and, and it aids with a successful return to work. What has happened, particularly in, through the COVID period, is increasing the training and literacy of managers so they can actually be a, a steady and supportive hand uh, and know their their role. You're not asking your leaders to be a mental health professional. That's the job of the mental health professional, but they can know their role in supporting the person through the journey back and in and a bit more specialised in the HR space. Additionally, it's then pr- looking at what support, practical support can be provided, and that might be direct access to healthcare providers or improving the access. We did see some organisations is just facilitating that through the pandemic in a way that they hadn't before. And then the third thing is actually just creating a space, a safer space to normalise the conversation has a big play in this recovering and return to work. So increasing the access to certain types of leave during the pandemic was another factor that, that supported improving an environment where you had improved recovery and return to work. Perfect. Ghana, anything you want to add? Yeah, I agree with what Alistair said. And the only thing I would add is that employers that make a plan with their employees who have gone out on a, on a mental health disability or mental health leave, those ones that make a plan for the individual about how they're going to support their mental health on when they come back have a much greater rate of individuals returning to work, less time out on disability, and less likely to leave the workforce for good. And so I think it's really incumbent on employers to make that a priority to understand that as if they can support individuals who have taken a a mental health leave, they can create a really robust and long lasting relationship, uh, which could otherwise go a different direction uh, without them being proactive. Perfect. Oliver, just to build on the discussion about the five domains, I think it's vitally important for leaders of organisations to understand that they need to take action in multiple domains. They can't just cherry pick one or two. And the reason for that is I think there's a real risk of individual employees become, becoming quite disenfranchised, particularly if most of the focus of organisations is around simply building individual resilience. That way employees can feel almost worked upon and that it's their problem alone to solve rather than actually having the organisation work alongside them to build the overall organisational resilience and also design the workplace itself to reduce the harm, to actually remove those risks that cause the individuals to experience ill health. Um, A classic example of this would be an organisation that tries to deal with extremely high stress levels by implementing one intervention that is just morning yoga classes, individuals will often react quite poorly to that. (laughs) And what they prefer to see is some more systemic interventions to reduce the overall 
risk factors within the workplace. Thank you for that. Now, Alistair, I want to ask you a question. The topic of mental health issues and the solution solving mental health issues often ends up being the purview of the HR department. That doesn't necessarily feel right to me. Any thoughts about that? It's a big challenge that we see out there. The organisations saying, well, HR, this is a people matter, go and solve it. And it's a challenge because you won't deliver, you won't achieve the best outcomes. The best outcomes here come from using all levers in your, in your power. And it's taking a holistic and integrated view right across your operating model. And what do I mean by that? Well, it's looking at things like your processes. What are the core processes that touch on an employee's experience or contribute to a positive or negative mental health experience? How can you change that? What about your structure? Is it set up such that people can get the support they need or not to do their job? And I'm not talking about emotional support, but practical support to do their job. Do you make it easy or difficult? And what about your culture? Is it psychologically safe? Does it reinforce the purpose of your set or are you introducing dissonance? Through taking that integrated and holistic approach across your operating model, you can actually drive a much better outcome. Yeah. And if you look at it that way, that is certainly not only an HR problem to solve. Could I also ask you, just continuing, Alistair, we live in a world where we have more and more access to data. Is that helpful in the fight against mental health issues? It certainly can be. It, it allows you with the information we've got to be far more precise in where you're going to focus your efforts and provide support. As each person turns up as a combination of different identities and experiences, the support that you can provide them needs to match that. So the experience of a, a working parent through COVID versus a young person living alone is quite different. And the support you can provide them can be quite different. And now using data, you can narrow and cut and splice and be far more personalized. And what's inherent in that is really understanding how the risks play out in your workplace, getting really smart on your people's experience. And you can start linking that to their experience, their performance and their outcomes. So listen, as we now round out this conversation, I would love to ask each of you one question, which is if you put yourself in the mind of some of the senior executives listening to this, I know that mental health is something that they are thinking about. And sometimes it's difficult to even start. What advice would you have for the people that are listening to this podcast? Fiona. My advice to senior executives would be to be as evidence-based as possible. There are a lot of resources out there that talk about what the proven risks are in terms of mental health, but also the proven interventions. And the more executives can draw upon things that work, um, the better their employees will respond. Thank you. Alistair. For me, it's taking the time to educate yourself about the topic and then exploring your own attitudes and perspectives on, on mental health. You cast a shadow here. It's the chance to cast a very positive one. Kana. I would say lead by example. You know, we know that one out of five people has a mental health issue in any given year, but one out of two people has a mental illness in their lifetime. And so everyone has someone. So I would encourage leaders to tell their own story. Who's the someone in your life? Is it you? Is it someone in your family? Is it someone that you love and care about? We've all had this experience somewhere in our lives. And if we can be open and lead by example, then the people in our organizations will feel more comfortable doing the same. Wonderful. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you to Kana. Thank you to Alistair. Thank you to Fiona for joining us and sharing with us today. And... Especially thank you for being passionate about this very important topic, driving research and sharing what you know and what we all can do about this topic. Thank you so much to all three of you. It's been delightful having you on. Mm-hmm.
You have been listening to the Future of Asia podcast by McKinsey and Company. To learn more about McKinsey, our people, our latest thinking, visit us at mckinsey.com/futureofasia or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook.